Welcome to Ethics in Action, brought to you by the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Dive into crucial conversations with academics and policymakers as we explore the crossroads of ethics and public affairs. Vlado, hello. You are in Belgrade, correct? Indeed, I am. Vlado is a world traveler. While I am in the basement in Boston, he is moving around between Budapest and Belgrade. And um, so uh, this is the second uh, meeting we are having as part of our uh, podcast series uh, that Vlado and that Vlado and I um, are working on on the uh, implications of the. Russian invasion into Ukraine for um, questions on uh, world order. Uh, Vlado is a um, historian and a um, senior research fellow at the Applied Ethics Center and um, at UMass Boston. And uh, I uh, am at the Applied Ethics Center as well. And uh, Vlado, last time we... um, spoke about uh, this question of the balance of power and whether Russia's invasion heralded in a new version of the 19th century uh, balance of power. And uh, we were going to pick up more or less where we uh, left off uh, and uh, talk a little bit about what it means to be a great power in the first place and whether that old 19th century idea is even still uh, relevant. So uh, what does it mean to be a world power? Uh, What does it mean to be a great power in this uh, uh, nuclear age in the first place? Is that uh, metaphorical framework or is that historical analogy even still relevant? And is Putin trying to make Russia into a great power again? So, well, quite a number of questions are on the table, right? Uh, It seems to me that we have a clear answer only to the last one, whether Putin is trying to make Russia into a great power again, or not again, or for the first time. That he certainly does. Whatever that might mean for him, this is something that we need to discern, I think. And we also have to discern what does it mean for us, given that in one way or another, we are all impacted by this attempt of his. I completely agree with you that uh, we are not completely settled on the issue of what great power is, perhaps not even what great powers were. Even in the 19th century, there was an endless debate about whether Russia is a great power of the same order as, let's say, Great Britain, um, whether the Ottomans should be treated as a great power or a great power in decay. um, And therefore, such opinions are certainly uh, floating around even today. What does it mean to be a great power? Well. For Putin, I believe it's really a traditionalist way of looking at things. In a sense, I think that uh, one of the predecessors of Mr. Lavrov, uh, Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs from the 19th century called uh, Gorchakov, uh, he had an interesting definition of a great power. He said, great power doesn't need recognition from anybody. Great power simply manifests itself. And I think that this is what Putin is doing. He's manifesting Russian power, projecting it abroad with crude uh, power, with armed forces. And on the top of it, interestingly enough, uh, he's breaching two major bontons in international relations. He did it basically even without a pretext. Even Hitler used the pretext uh, when attacking Poland. There was an affair in Gleiwitz where uh, German soldiers dressed as Polish soldiers to a radio station, and this was used as a pretext. There was no similar pretext here, even though I was in Donbass in 2019, that part of the world is ripe for pretexts. If you want to have a false flag operation, you can easily do it there. And I think that he didn't do it for a reason. He didn't do it because the implicit message was, I'm doing this because I can do this. Try and stop me if you're there. That sounds great powerish to me. Yeah. So if I'm hearing you correctly, uh, this kind of Gorchakov definition of great power, it's the oldest and the crudest version of realism, namely that might is right, 
I'm I'm almost literally reminded, for example, of the Melian dialogue in Thucydides, where uh, the Athenians attack this or decide to attack this little island of Milos because it decides that it, it, it wants to be neutral in the war between Athens and Sparta and the Melians. The islanders say to the Athenians, we've done nothing to you. Why would you attack us? And the Athenians essentially say, because it's in our best interest, because we can. And in international relations, the strong do uh, what they will and the weak accept what they must. Um, and so it's this kind of classical unchanged idea uh, of being a great power. Um, with a bit of a caveat, uh, yeah. one thing sort of changed. So the last 20 or 30 years, any attempt to use uh, armed uh, forces uh, was for the most part legitimized by one humanitarian concern or another. And this is also a Ponton type rule, which Putin breached. In his speech from the February 21st, he did mention somewhat though, uh, that one of the ideas is to protect the population of Donbas from an impending genocide. Uh, but this was definitely not the bulkiest place of that speech. He just mentioned it and went on to deliver history lessons. Uh, so this was a half-hearted attempt. I think that his real goal was to send the Gorchakovian message. I am doing this because I can do it and this is our right. He grounded his reasoning in history. He grounded his reasoning in destiny and in such abstract or metaphysical elements which had not been heard for a long while in the international arena. It's not that they were not used, but they were just not heard. Whether there is a difference, that's now a question for you. Whether there is a difference uh, between simply, you know, talking, uh, talking ethics and doing politics and doing politics without any ethical concern or whatsoever, even verbal one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that kind of that reminds me of uh, uh, Burke's comment in the reflections on the revolution in French, the, uh, on the reflections on the revolution in France, where he says that uh, even a hypocritical attempt to justify the application of power is better than no attempt to justify the application of power because hypocrisy pays a compliment to a sense of shame. Uh, you know, his, his example there was that, um, you know, even Henry VIII kind of uh, made an attempt to uh, justify the uh, takeover of the uh, English monasteries uh, from the Catholic Church uh, when he was undoing it. Um, I mean, that's, you know, that's its own question about whether the naked application of power uh, is uh, far worse than uh, the uh, application of power dressed up in a lie. I think you're right that Putin kind of didn't decide between completely between this kind of half-hearted justification and uh, just nakedly applying it. Um, but this idea of being a great power again, is this sort of, you know, what, what grounds it for Putin? Is this sort of a, uh, question of this, uh, you know, of nostalgia or uh, the sort of political humiliation, some idea of, you know, uh, we were in one guise or another uh, a great power and uh, most recently removed uh, from it at the end of the Cold War, um, or is it straight up a, a desire to kind of uh, assert a sphere of influence for a political reasons? So is this sort of a glory-based project or is this primarily an interest-based project the combination of both if it's a combination what do you think the uh, relative proportions are yeah well we might pause a bit to think about the sources for our thinking right it seems to me that we have two major leeways to try to decipher what's happening uh, one is for instance what putin is speaking telling about and another one is the situation on the ground. We are trying to discern what's happening. And when we look at those two things and take them together, we actually see that uh, the bid for great power is certainly there. To which degree this bid is successful, that's actually open for grabs. Uh, clearly, there was a strong counter reaction to, uh, to the Russian invasion to Ukraine. Um, it seems that it's definitely not going according to the plan but then it can still be a failed bid to a great power. 
it's connected to the initial question that you posed. What does it mean to be a great power today? Uh, from the outside, so perhaps in Putin's head, this does look like return to the glorious past. This might look like a vanity project. This might look like recuperating zones of influence beyond Russia's borders. But what puzzles me is that that seems also very much out of tune. Why? Firstly, I think it's a notorious fact that once you try to use the force, that means that you completely abandon any notion of soft power. That means that you basically recognize that your political project, and in this case, Russian Federation, is not tempting anymore to those neighbors. Uh, that the idea of Russian world uh, had lost its power of a magnet if it ever had one, and it still seems to have one for, let's say, Kazakhstan or for Belarus, but for the most part, it doesn't function. It doesn't function even there, actually. Uh, so what for Putin might be uh, an attempt to show that, uh, that Russia is a great power again, um, to an observer from the outside, looks like a bully on the playground who is picking up, picking on a smaller kid. Uh, and basically, um, it's something that, for instance, Milosevic would be likely to be doing. Uh, it's something that Israeli government would be doing from time to time. Um, so it's not something that the great power needs to do. A great power, to my mind, if it even exists, is motivated with something that Theodore Roosevelt called, uh, how did he say it? Uh, uh, talk silently and carry a, uh, what's the actual quote? Speak, talk silently speak, and carry a big speak stick. Speak softly and carry a big stick, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So he's not talking so, uh, softly, on the contrary, he's quite a loudmouth. And it seems to me that we can understand it in the following way. A lot of this battle, is waged not only about the control of the Euro-Asian board or great powers or recharting the world for the 21st century, it's also an internal struggle. So this is a front which Putin opened at the same time in the minds and hearts of every Ukrainian and every Russian for that matter. Uh, nothing is so powerful in molding collective identities as wars and suffering. And it seems to me that one of the wars he's waging is war in Russia. He's transforming Russia into whatever he thinks uh, should be Russia in the 21st century. And the, the question is really whether he is successful or not in his attempts. I think this is what we might try to examine together, uh, to which extent he's failing internally or externally, and basically where is this whole thing heading to? Yeah. So if I'm understanding you correctly, um, Russia doesn't have this kind of capacity at this point to uh, compete in influence or compete in attractiveness of a way of life that it is offering uh, uh, with the West. And part of the project is a nation building project aimed internally. I would rather say Kulturkampf uh, when it comes to internal things. So internally, what we saw over the years in Russia was tightening of many things, uh, tightening of uh, the ways one can speak about the past, uh, tightening of anti-gay sentiments and uh, legislations, tightening uh, repression in the cultural scene and stuff like that. So all that tells me that basically the system is much more than simply selling oil, selling gas, uh, getting spheres of influence. Uh, powerful influences say, look, this is not who we are. We are not Westerners. We are not decadent uh, something somethings. And many of us are somehow sucked into the system which appeared after 1989. And we are going to put a stop to that. Uh, so this seems to me to be, to be the front which is, uh, which is uh, fought. Plus, that has an added value for Russia. Russia uh, apparently didn't really succeed in the ball game as it was since 1990s. It didn't trickle. It didn't trickle. And Russia did remain a second-rate power, great or not. Mostly feared for its nuclear capacity and needed for its natural resources. So it seems to me that Putin is reconfiguring the world scene and putting it where uh, Russians can fare better because they can suffer more. Historically and in present, they can simply suffer more. So making the political scene much rougher and making a war a tangible reality is something that an average Russian can stomach somehow much easier than an average Luxembourgian. Yeah. Uh, so he's putting many, uh, many people, let alone international institutions, in a situation that will 
be difficult to overcome. Yeah, it's interesting this point about suffering more. I mean, there is a strand in the history of political philosophy that says that nation building doesn't have to be, you know, uh, predicated on what you give people, your people, but on what you take away from them. So Machiavelli talks about this in The Prince. The Prince can attach people to him or herself um, based on the sacrifices that he demands rather than on the benefits that they give. Orwell says something pretty similar uh, in his review of uh, Mein Kampf, namely that Stalin and Hitler kind of understood that, you know, people want parades and self-sacrifice and not only, uh, uh, you know, uh, benefits and uh, nice cars. Um, so there's certainly a tradition of nation building that is based on self-sacrifice. There's certainly a psychology that goes along with that, uh, that authoritarian regimes are better uh, aligned to exploit. Whether or not that can sustain an idea of, you know, whether or not this idea of sacrifice, of being better suited, as you nicely said it, for suffering, can sustain a national identity, uh, in any kind of uh, uh, prolonged way, I think I think is an open is an open question. Uh, it's almost like if actually you are going to be a great power, you are going to have to move from uh, this uh, idea of how much you can suffer to can you sell other people a view of the world, or at least that's the Western version of it, right? Yes. However, Putin is definitely not a good salesman. I mean, I, I think that he's, he has problems selling this worldview even to Lukashenko. But what he is immensely successful in is dragging you into that worldview. Uh, so simply, he calls the shots. He is dictating the pace of this game. He is the one who had set the timeline for the beginning of the invasion. He is the one who announced the invasion in the speech, actually two speeches, one in February 21, another one in February 23rd. He's the one people are looking at. He's the one Macron is calling. He's the one who is also dictating if there will ever be an armistice uh, and the conditions will not be met without his approval. Uh, and in that respect, uh, Russia can produce a lot of damage. So Russia doesn't have to sell the worldview. Russia just has to move couple to make a couple of moves and make us all real politicers overnight. People went to bed like, I don't know, liberal thinkers and internationalists and woke up uh, trying to find iodine in the pharmacy. So in that respect, Russia doesn't need to sell. It only needs to act. And this is actually what I think Russia is successfully doing. So no matter how he might be losing the war in Ukraine uh, or not meeting whichever goals he had, I think that, that he is winning in something very important. I mean, international legal order is thrown through the window. He was not alone in it, by the way. Erosion of international legal order uh, has deeper roots. He's sort of benefiting from uh, from steady decline in uh, doing any sort of politics through, through the United Nations. And uh, so, yes, in that respect, he might, uh, he might uh, win. I mean, I took a look at his speech. I read it many times and uh, I hope we can post it some, somewhere with this uh, conversation as well. It was a really interesting speech, the one he gave on the 21st of February. It lasts for about 50 minutes. It's a lecture. And it's a well-constructed lecture, despite of the context and content. Uh, he devoted, let's say, a quarter of an hour to historical reasons of his beef with some of the Ukrainian politicians, and then another 15 minutes to present concerns and how this past spills over into the present. And then he said something about how would it be in the future if we don't act, and then basically he decided to recognize Donetsk and Lugansk people's republics. And uh, the, the speech was really shocking for the, for the viewers uh, because they discarded it as a piece of lunacy, basically. And uh, uh, they wondered if there is any reason to actually, uh, actually analyze it. I think otherwise, uh, because those things don't come out of the blue. And isolated as he is, he was certainly aware that this is a moment where he is touching base A, with his uh, constituency, B, with people whom he is about to invade, and C, with the rest of the world. So certainly that speech will find its way into black books of infamy once this uh, once the dust settles. But in the meanwhile, 
uh, it says a lot. His history lessons are not just ranting of a madman. They have uh, they have a narrative logic to them. And uh, the, uh, so, for instance, one can ask oneself, why is he grounding his arguments in history at all? Right. And in my experience, uh, people usually ground their arguments in history when they have nothing better to offer. The law is not on their side. The economical argument is not on their side either. But history is up for grabs. History can be whatever you want it to be. It's much more moldable, right? So history is simply on the shelves of, uh, of, of bad arguments. Secondly, history can be very emotional. And he did, it, he did his best to put it in emotional terms. He was, I think, fairly successful in touching certain, uh, certain sore points uh, to many listeners basically presenting Russia as a magnanimous husband, which was disappointed time and again by ungrateful, well, rather by ungrateful child, actually. And this child needs to be put back into a fold. That's the main logic behind it. And lots of arguments of how and why did it happen, who is to blame, and so on. And then at some point he says, well, we are well aware that the past cannot be changed, cannot be altered. That's what he says. But actually, his actions are proving that actually he doesn't feel that the past is unalterable, and actually he's trying to rectify it. Uh, yeah. And I, I take him for his word when it comes to that. Yeah, the w- one theme that comes out in that speech is this kind of uh, litany of uh, insult, this li- this uh, litany of um, this this kind of. Uh, uh, rage against ingratitude right uh so that uh you know ukraine uh was uh uh, created and constructed by lenin but now statues of lenin are being uh uh, broken and then uh, who's the uh who's the 18th century russian general that he uh mentions there Yeah. yeah um you know his statues are being uh, smashed too after he you know helped defend the city and so on and so on so there's very much this kind of um narrative of um injury of insult of, of you know ingratitude of course and it's mighty mighty effective on the home front actually uh, at first people were hopeful and i was hopeful that this is a putin war that uh, you know people would simply not buy it but people do buy this argument of being cheated on. That's the thing. Why? Well, there are several reasons. I remember one moment in speech when he says, and look, now they, and they being not only parts of uh, Ukraine, which is pro-Western, but also the West, they are trying to put a knife under our throat. This is the metaphor he used. Uh, And he meant that the weaponry is about to be deposited to Ukraine, which will be able to reach, I don't know, Smolensk or Moscow and so on within minutes. That was the crescendo of his speech. Uh, and he said then two really amazing things. He said, our ancestors would not believe it. Our ancestors would not believe it. That's something that you would expect a druid to tell you, right? Uh, or, uh, you know, uh, so how do you analyze that? But then he says, this weapon of mass destruction can be put in practice really quickly, he warns. And why? because we had good Soviet technology, which we left to Ukraine in 1991. And so basically what he's saying is that we are going to be attacked by our own weapons in a sense, which we out of kindness of our heart had left uh, at the disposal of Ukrainian government. And now they are going to weaponize it with Western uh, technology and attack us who had built Ukraine and had built this infrastructure in the first place. Imagine, that's his thing, so imagine. He, uh, that makes people uh, whose um, GDP is very low, uh, whose lifestyle is uh, far less than satisfying, who feel that they have been cheated by history in one way or another, you can make the blood boil by projecting that responsibility for, uh, for, for what's happening to the evil hypocritical West, which had cheated Gorbachev, moved NATO, uh, eastwards much more than they promised, and so on, and so on, and so on, keeping Russia in the subjugated status uh, during the 90s, and now being in when Russia is finally re-emerging from that subjugated status, and then even sort of cheating Ukraine to become a useful fool for the West 
this is a kind of a narrative that he's uh, that he's promoting. Of course, not always directly, and sometimes even on a subliminal level. And the point is that um, at this point, Russia is almost living, unfortunately, in a parallel reality. So uh, we are not completely able to understand what the public opinion in Russia is. And definitely, we are not able to completely understand what is in the mind of a median recipient of such a message. But uh, what we can see is that popular support for him is not really dwindling. There had been public outcries against the war. But as you know, in Russia, you can't really even protest uh, if you don't fill in a number of forms. Uh, yeah. And... So, so, Vlado, connecting the, uh, the speech uh, and these kind of themes that you mentioned to our discussion earlier, you know, one reading is that this is part of an attempt, along with the war itself, to you know, uh, create this sort of national identity that's based on a sense of betrayal, ingratitude, a capacity for suffering, a fall from grace, uh, a, uh, a jilting and humiliation uh, by the manhood, West. Explicit, uh, explicit manhood, which is sort of, I think, quite a, quite a, quite a right. pillar to this. And, and insofar as that's true, it has some echoes of uh, other kinds of populist nation buildings uh, in other places, right? Uh, where everywhere and always resentment is, you know, uh, a key to it. Uh, or it's just a cynical uh, attempt to put a bow around and uh, justify what is a uh, cruel um, land grab, uh, which is a variation of a historical attempt, whether it's Finland, whether it's uh, uh, Ukraine, to create a buffer between you and whoever you think is dangerous. And from listening to you, it almost seems like Putin himself didn't decide which of these two projects he's engaged in. Yeah, and you, you can add to the list Hungary in 1956 or Czechoslovakia in 1968. So the obsession with buffers is longstanding, certainly in Russian uh, exterior relations. Uh, but I would agree with you that it can easily be both. Um, I'm really shocked that people are trying to have monocausal approach to, to Putin's behavior, uh, given that in their personal life, they rarely uh, behave monocausally, right? Uh, but uh, what to me is uh, a matter of concern is, okay, how do you become a great power in nuclear age, in post-nuclear age? Yeah. Uh, to manifest yourself as a great power through conventional warfare is downright insane, actually. Uh, it seems like an unnecessary gamble, uh, which can bring you some really limited benefit and which could potentially uh, kill everybody or I mean, look, at least topple your own government. I mean, I guess this takes us back to the first question, which in some way we're having a hard time answering because of how the nature of power is changing. What does it even mean to have great power when every state that has nuclear weapons has a monopoly on your ability, practically speaking, to apply power? Uh, I mean, isn't the whole idea of a great power obsolete? Yeah, well... Maybe the, maybe the relevant category is, I mean, Pakistan, for all pac practical purposes, is a great power. North Korea is a great power, right? Nobody can mess with Israel. it. Uh, Israel. So, you know, isn't the only relevant category, do you have nuclear weapons or not? And the lesson being, if you have them, never give them up. And if you almost have them like the Iranians, do everything that you can to actually have them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Ukraine, of course, gives another food for thought in that regard because of the deal which was struck during right. the dissolution of the USSR to basically abandon its nuclear arsenal. Uh, which was, in a sense, Soviet nuclear arsenal. Uh, many Ukrainians say, well, look, uh, okay, they say, imagine the war stops, and imagine that there are some powers which will vouch, be it EU, be it, I don't know, Turkey, be it the US. That's not a guarantee for us, they say, because there was such a treaty in 1994. There was a treaty by which uh, Ukraine was basically denuclearized, and uh, there were vouchers to this treaty which turned void at this point. Um, that's, of course, super dangerous, uh, all of it, because that means that whoever is trying to assume 
nuclear uh, whichever nuclear program is out there running is definitely not going to stop uh, if uh, those leaders are reading these messages uh, correctly. So that's uh, that's, uh, that's yeah that's a good answer. I mean, uh, I almost want I almost want to propose to you that the talk of balance of powers. There is no real balance of power still between the United States and even the combined uh, Russian-Chinese bloc. The one thing in some ways that has changed is a willingness of the Russians to act as if they were a great power, uh, which is predicated on, based on, uh, takes into account their sort of implied threat that they're willing to use nuclear weapons uh, uh, if they're pushed uh, into a corner. And uh, the other day I was listening to an interview uh, with a, a former senior uh, uh, American officer and his basic point in response to this was that if it comes very much in support of the sort of Biden non-intervention, you know, non-direct intervention kind of line. And the explicit point, which was almost shocking to hear, uh, was actually shocking to hear is if it comes to this, yes, I'm willing to give up 40 million Ukrainians to make sure that there's no nuclear war. Now, if you hear that from sort of mainstream military establishment figures, and I can, I'll put the interview uh, in the show notes. If you're willing, if you can hear that from mainstream uh, uh, military figures, um, you know, it seems like the only part that's relevant of being a great power is a credibly threatening to use nuclear force and the rest of the kind of balance of power is out the window. Uh, yes, I imagine so, but probably it's even worse because this was a public threat. I mean, uh, nothing prevented Putin for, uh, from so this is a public threat and that opens a question so how many times can you make such a public threat because probably one of the aspects of the great power would be firstly that the great power doesn't need to threaten, threaten anybody and unfortunately also great power for the most part has to do whatever the great power uh, threatened with it's really difficult for great power to withdraw once uh, once a certain set of stakes is there on the table and meddling with nuclear ability in that uh, in that set of promises uh, can't bring uh, good to anybody uh, yeah. appeasement though so uh, the crux of, of the argument was some sort of an appeasement actually for sake of maintaining peace in the family and uh, avoiding nuclear escalation that opens the question okay fine uh, but what do you do uh, if something happens in Finland uh, and then what do you do if some small thing happens uh, on the border of Estonia and what do you do and what do you do and what do you do and next thing you know we are asking uh, questions about the river Rhine or something like that so I don't know let's re-examine the question of great powers from another angle uh, who are they so we are asking ourselves whether they exist or not right uh, so it's rather clear that the U.S. is still in that game and so is China. Uh, and then we have to pause a bit because we don't know what is the status of Great Britain uh, now when Great Britain is outside of the EU. And then we have to pause again because we don't know what is or what was the status of EU even before that. And then we have to pause again because nobody talks about BRICS anymore. And it was a thing a couple of years ago, like a, a number of... Right the underdogs somehow assembled. Right. So, so let me throw a question back at you. What's your sensation? What are the great powers? Then Brazil, not in your definition because of the lack of nuclear warfare, nuclear abilities, but then Israel, yes, or Pakistan, yes, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess part of my, part of my proposal or part of my, uh, question was that the category itself has lost relevance because of the disproportionate influence that a nuclear weapon holder yields as sort of veto power, which we actually are seeing play out uh, uh, as we speak, right? So the kind of moderate view is, yes, of course, we can't, you know, cross a line with the Russians because any line creates a risk that even if uh, not great is uh, uh, existential if it comes comes to pass. 
Um, so, I mean, I think it's almost like there's there's a lack of clarity on who would go into a traditional list of a great power, and there's unclarity about whether the traditional concept is still relevant because of nuclear veto. And I would add a third unclarity uh, uh, for you, just so that things are not too clear. Uh, and that is um, about this point you made earlier that a great power has to be credible in the end about what it threatens. Um, I think there's probably a difference there between an authoritarian and a democratic great power uh, on that sense. Um, a uh, authoritarian power, uh, I think, depends more on uh, this kind of, uh, uh, you know, don't talk too much, deliver um, on a sense of honor, on a sense of humiliation. Uh, democratic legitimacy, to some extent, comes from somewhere else. I mean, let me give you uh, an example. For somebody like Putin, much of what he has is his perceived strength and uh, the sense of uh, uh, honor or admiration that he does or doesn't uh, convey to his own people. Uh, if somebody like Obama or somebody uh, um, like the uh, British parliament at the time retreat in 2011 from the red line that they uh, drew in the sand about Syrian uh, uh, use of chemical weapons, uh, or if uh, you know Biden changes his mind, uh, the ultimate credibility of a democratic leader is the fact that they get reelected. Uh, and in a way, they can afford more humiliation than an authoritarian leader can as a result. Um, and as a result, they're slightly less dangerous, uh, or at least so this theory would go. I know many uh, disagree with this. Um, so even there, the definition of power is different. You know, what you said about part of the definition of being a great power is the ability to kind of take risks, the ability to propose an, uh, you know, an imagined way of life that they want to convince people into. Um, that is true, that is more true of a Republican or Democratic power than of an authoritarian one. Well, now I have a number of reflections and if I may try to sort them out without being too convoluted. Uh, last week when we talked, you proposed an interesting hypothesis that we are living in a time of new transition and that we are transitioning towards something which might as well be the balance of power system or something else. But the reason why we don't see clearly and we can't say who the great power is or whether we should talk about, for instance, the EU as opposed to Germany and France and so on, that this is the time of transition. That might be. And back then I had a flashback, uh, one of the paintings of Salvador Dali, and if you allow me the, the, the prerogative, I will share the uh, share the painting. You just have yes. to enable me to do so. Uh, the painting is called uh, The Geopolitical Child is Watching the Birth of the New Man. And uh, this, was the vision, this was the vision in my head when you, when you mentioned this transitional period. Uh, it was this nightmarish vision of Dali, of yeah. the geopolitical so, so, child. Say, and for people who are just listening to the audio, I'll put a link to this in the show notes. But say a little, say a little more about what this uh, painting brings to mind for you. Yes. So the painting was made during the Second World War by Dali, uh, and my reflection was on your idea that basically we are witnessing uh, the revival of this new old world, mm -hmm. and the thing is. We are not witnessing this for the first time. Uh, so it might as well be that this is a sort of an aborted uh, attempt to, to produce this new, new old world. Why? Well, several reasons. So clearly Putin breached a number of, uh, well, ways that foreign policy is being conducted. That's, uh, that's beyond dispute. But clearly this didn't bring him far. Uh, and it might be that it's going to be even a deterrent. We have to see, of course, very closely what's going to happen with China and Taiwan, uh, which is another hotspot, which is uh, which is out there. Uh, but it seems to me that uh, the way he is doing, uh, conducting his business is uh, too brutish even for the Chinese. The way they project power at this point is with global investments in creating the new silk roads and stuff like that. Um, and uh, I think that this is a bit too much for their uh, for their stomach. Uh, 
So it might be that Putin is still the last cry of the previous century. I, I, I doubt, and I wish to doubt, of course, uh, that uh, he is just showing us how it's going to be until the end of our lives. Now, why? Well, uh, it seems to me that grounding international relations in uh, public diplomacy and grounding international relations in, uh, in international law is frequently misunderstood as some sort of liberal daydreaming. Whereas in reality, it came as a desperate conclusion that this is the way it has to be conducted. Otherwise, we are all dead. So it's not just a couple of, uh, couple of uh, people who had good intentions who came up with that. The system was devised because it didn't really have a viable alternative. Concert of great powers failed a number of times. The last time it failed in 1914, it opened up an era of, um, of world wars. Uh, mind you, though, uh, to, to bring the story back to the beginning of our conversation, whether the world of today looks like concert of great powers, there is one huge difference. Those powers were hereditary monarchy, uh, and that meant two things. Firstly, that all those people were cousins, including Kaiser Wilhelm and the uh, Russian Tsar Nicholas II. Uh, and that did prove a certain amount of cushion, not because they were family, but because they shared, shared a certain worldview where monarchies matter. That was one thing. Another and more important thing is that monarchies were hereditary, which meant that there was a predictability in the way that power changes hands. And this is something that doesn't exist now anywhere, and especially not in Russia. So the problem of succession is very, very important. And that means that Putin can, for instance, produce a lot of damage, but his time span is limited. In democracies, presidents come and go, but certain elements of foreign politics actually do remain. Whereas in an autocracy of a kind that Putin is running, nobody is really safe. And uh, uh, it's not going to be possible to organize any meaningful balance between great powers. If in these great powers, everything is about potential coups, uh, steps in the backs and all those things. So the problem of uh, non-hereditary authoritarian power is very well known. Hitler was running the same problem. Uh, and uh, that will make uh, basically global disbalance of power much, much likelier outcome. Of, of. So it's not really, the concert can't be restored. Uh, and then most probably uh, bringing back the international law into the arena, bringing back the United Nations into the arena is not only daydreaming, but it might as well be very sound politics. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's a fascinating point, this point about the original balance of power being predicated on some kind of uh, stability that comes with uh, uh, the legitimacy of hereditary uh, rule. I mean, that being said, so realize, I mean, look, realizing that uh, international law is our last best chance, if you will, in international institutions for some kind of stability and actually doing the minimum that that requires uh, are two different things. So it's true, I think, that the realization was there uh, after World War II that international, some kind of version of uh, uh, the rise of international institutions is absolutely necessary. But when all is said and done, and when all the soft power considerations are taken to, uh, into effect, international law simply never had enough teeth to actually uh, uh, do that. And so that part where law requires the ability to uh, uh, levy sanctions, real sanctions, the kind that uh, uh, police uh, levies uh, domestically in a country, that part in some way was always missing, right? Um, security council or no security council. Uh, you know, it's much more sort of that moment of uh, uh, Colonel Romeo Dallaire being, uh, uh, you know, helpless to uh, stop genocide than international powers regularly, you know, intervening to punish the people who, uh, who inflict it. Um, mm. So the alternative view is that what kept the world stable after World War II was mutually assured destruction, and that that is what pushed uh, uh, warfare into the so-called so margins of the international uh, system. I know that you and I both come from the margins of the international system uh, uh, in that context, but it wasn't international law. It was 
the fact that mainly non-nuclear capable powers for a while started fighting or fighting in a way that completely took off nuclear war off the table because of you know the vivid memories of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and uh, now those memories maybe are fading and the question is back on the table. Hmm. So this is the pessimist take on your the highly pessimist take on your point. Yes. Well, uh, so about about coming from the margins. So margins are quite interesting because they are mostly on the receiving end of global politics. Yeah. And one can see interesting things from the receiving end, which are frequently invisible to constituents in most for, more fortunate parts of the world. For instance, we talk about a lot about the nuclear armament uh, as the dimming moment in contemporary politics. Uh, but perhaps it's not the only one. I shivered the other night uh, on a passing news that a chemical weapon was used in Mariupol. Uh, uh, the, there are lots of weapons of mass destruction scattered around the world in a number of military, uh, bioweapon, this and that. Uh, so it might be that we are talking only about one boogeyman, whereas the other boogeymen are still not, uh, not out there in the open when it comes to extremely deadly weapons that can be used by not so great powers in terms of economy, for instance. That's, uh, that's one part of an even more pessimistic view on how the world is, uh, where the world is heading to. However, uh, and, and by the way, the concert of great powers of some kinds uh, was quite successful in disallowing many countries to go into the direction of uh, chemical powers or in the direction of nuclear powers. This is actually where USSR and the USA cooperated successfully during the Cold War, not allowing the others to enter the, uh, the game. Now, um, whether there is room for international law and all that, uh, I like to think that there is. There had been such historical situations uh, in 1956, for instance, when uh, Israel, France, and Great Britain colluded to invade Egypt. And uh, the US, together with the USSR, uh, put a lid to it. How and why, probably this is not the right moment to, to speak about it, although, of course, I would be extremely interested to hear your, uh, your take on that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> OK, it was an ambush. <laughs> you don't yeah. have to. Uh, no, no, it was an ambush. No. Uh, yeah. It, it, it wasn't an ambush. I just want to make sure that we don't get uh, two sidetracks, you know, two sidetracked. Uh, um, so those, I mean, what I have in mind, I guess, you know, the U.S. and uh, the USSR collaborated to uh, stop that both of them had a correct and credible sense of themselves as great powers at the time. And it was closer to the end of World War II and the memories of how these things, and for that matter to World War I, and the memory of how these things can get out of hand was uh, more fresh. I think I told you the other day that I was, you know, looking at some material on the Cuban Missile Crisis. And one thing that you got pretty clearly from there uh, you know, in their very, very different ways, both from Khrushchev and from Kennedy, is the fact that memories of war were fresh for both of them. Uh, you know, in one of Khrushchev's famous two um, uh, uh, somewhat contradictory or very contradictory telegrams uh, to Kennedy, he says, you know, let's not pull on this uh, rope of war and make the knot tighter in a way that none of us can uh, uh, untie it. Uh, you and I have both seen war and we know how it rolls through cities and, you know, only ends when, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Kennedy himself was, you know, a commander of a, a, a PT patrol boat in uh, uh, World War II. And, you know, had a very, very uh, healthy skepticism of the sort of big talk of how, you know, uh, uh, great causes and millions of people are uh, worth killing for them, et cetera. Um, I wonder if there is something to the fact that that kind of direct memory of war, of war of that scale, is not there for uh, 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 Putin, who whose formative experience is that you know experience in Dresden where nobody answered the phone when he said, "Can I shoot the people who are trying to 
uh, move to the West and, uh, and for Biden, who has a lot of foreign ex policy experience, but no trauma uh, in that sense. So I think this is a really complicated question. So everybody knows the anecdote that one of the one of the sources of uh, of, of Kennedy's stamina uh, to make the generals back off, at least more hawkish generals, was uh, a story that intellectuals like that he had time to read the book uh, The Gun of, Guns of August yeah. uh, about how the First World War went out of hand and so on and so forth. Right. Uh, right. Uh, certainly, firstly, I wonder if the anecdote is right. It sounds it sound very Schlesingerian, but imagine yeah, it I is. Th I, th I think it is right. I think from, okay. what, I'm, uh, from what I know okay. that it was even sent to most American uh, uh, military bases. I've been reading this book about uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis that also discusses that. Uh, I can, put, I can yeah. put that in the show notes as well. Yes, it is. I mean, Kennedy was a fervent reader, no doubt about that. But yeah. the thing is, it's not enough to read. Uh, it has to fall on a fertile, fertile soil, right? Uh, and your point is that those people, being war veterans, uh, were really not happy to see it all over again, right? Probably so, and luckily so. Uh, but there are other war veterans who are Absolutely. the happiest in the saddle, uh, Hitler being uh, a supreme example. Yeah. So, uh, in, in, in a sense, uh, in a sense uh, wartime experience can sometimes be such a thrill that you want to have a repetition, especially if you see that you are the losing side uh, that the presidential candidate of the U.S. is calling you. You mentioned, you reminded me of that McCain's uh, description of Russia, uh, a gas station, a glorified yeah, a, a, a gas, gas station. A, a gas station with nuclear weapons. I, <clears throat> that, yes, yes. That description, which is a very dangerous description, I think, especially given the psychology that Putin is displaying, is, is making the rounds again. Yes. So, well, I mean, narratives in politics, they mean a lot. Uh, firstly, they bound you, right? It's really difficult to get into a speech in which Putin uh, did and uh, to, get, to, get, um, to get away with it. And once you launch some sort of a speech, it's unfortunately clear that the heads will roll. And yeah. that's the gamble. Uh, one of the reasons that he took this gamble, I think, among many, is that probably uh, he would, uh, if he was a third Zoom person here, he would probably agree with you that the times had changed. Uh, but I don't think that he would say, look, uh, unlike Brezhnev, unlike Khrushchev, I didn't see war from close, close up. He would probably say, look, I already launched wars. I launched one in Georgia. I launched one in Syria or took part in it, better to say. I know war, uh, unlike my European counterparts. And then probably he would point out to the fact that a number of European politicians are not likely, uh, how to put it, best suited to face this crisis. Uh, and it's not only about politicians. You absolutely rightfully mentioned that in democracies, after a while, uh, it's easier to basically backtrack on what you did because your constituency is judging you or the government changes after all and so on and so forth. An autocrat doesn't have this, uh, this opportunity. And you are absolutely right about that. But on the other hand, in democracies, uh, those who are trying to get into power are also pampering their own constituency quite a lot. And if their constituency is, for instance, rich and unwilling to fight, and not only unwilling to fight, but also unwilling to sacrifice, then we are running into an interesting problem. Take European Union for a moment. It yeah. has an extremely complex mechanism of decision making. It's on the front lines of this conflict, and it's supposed to take uh, the most visible role in this uh, in this conflict. Okay, how to take that role? If you have elections all the time in all of those 27 countries. The other day, we were all good to the TV to see if Marie Le Pen, like French version of Trump, would uh, would get in power in France, which would certainly destabilize whichever European unity exists now to confront um, the invasion uh, of Russia. And if those things keep happening in one country after another, in the spasmodic four-year rhythm, it's going to be really difficult to maintain any sort of coherent foreign political approach, which is so needed at this point. It's I, I couldn't overemphasize this. To my mind, one of the reasons that the US, uh, US uh, was a victor of the Cold War was a relative consistency of its uh, foreign policy. Uh, the Democrats and Republicans couldn't agree on many things internally, but uh, the way the US projected its power in the world I mean, I don't know what would be the difference between Truman and Eisenhower in that regard. And this is a trend which, uh, of course, Mutatis Mutandis was 
uh, was there all the time. Uh, in the EU, there is no such a thing. There has to be such a thing if uh, if it wants to not even become a great power, but simply do anything constructive at this point. Otherwise, uh, Kissinger's quip would be right that like, uh, what's the telephone number of Europe? This is what he asked somebody uh, <laughs> when they asked him about the uh, the EU. But the problem is, of course, that Europeans today are probably not ready to imagine if these sanctions are to work they would definitely have to have an impact on daily life of uh, of, of everybody yeah. in the west is the west ready for that yeah. in my mind the west has to be ready for that it's a minor sacrifice imagine the sacrifices of our grandparents and and and, and uh, many other people around the world the price of commodities is really meaningless in comparison to that so this is a major obstacle which we need to overcome. And yeah. this is something which should open up other possibilities. But if we don't do that, then even the politicians' hands are quite tight in that respect. So, Vla- so, stopping, Putin, so stopping Putin is not just a slogan directed to our leaders. It's actually a slogan which we keep to, uh, internalized. Yeah, yeah. As I, as, as I listen to this last point, I actually hear two somewhat separate arguments. One argument is this kind of Western decadence argument, if you will, that you know uh, Putin is making the the argument that you know uh, the West is too weak, the West is too uh, interested in luxuries, the West is too interested in uh, uh, cheap gasoline to be willing to make the same kind of sacrifices that the Russians are willing to make, and in the end, therefore, you know, history will favor them in the long term. That's not very different from the sort of uh, uh, Western decadence arguments that Hitler used to make. Uh, there, so there, there's a there's a history of those kind of arguments. Namely, I mean, Hitler, you know, always dressed them up in uh, anti-Semitic garb. He said that the West would be Jewified, to uh, you know, addicted to comforts, right? But um, and the, the, there seems to be a kind of uh, uh, rhyming there. Uh, and then um, to that point. Um, there would need to be some kind of like, as you were saying, for example, to have a chance against some of this, some sacrifices would need to be made. And actually, historically speaking, there is a history of the West in the end making them, becoming a little bit less Western in the process of making them. So like centralizing the economies and making them into command economies in order to uh, uh, come up with the production that was necessary for winning World War II, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But as you say correctly, taking a four or five point hit in Germany and GDP as a result of uh, disconnecting yourself from Russian gas would not be uh, the greatest sacrifice uh, that that we've ever had to make. So there's one point about this question of decadence. The other point is this question of consistency of political philosophy among Western powers. How many of them are actual liberal democracies and how many of them are populist democracies that are sort of winking to uh, uh, an admiration for uh, authoritarian um, rulers and so on and so forth. And if I understand you correctly, on both of those, there would need to be both a willingness to make some sacrifices, which in truth are nowhere as bad as the sacrifices that our grandfathers and mothers had to make, you're right about that, but also, a sort of more robust commitment to a liberal democratic direction. Uh, you can't have a Europe that's divided between, you know, social democrats and the uh, Marie Le Pen's of the world and the Orbans if if it's going to act as some kind of unified power. Well, Is that fair? That's absolutely fair. I, I would really not add anything to that. Um, aside of the fact that basically some sacrifices now might as well prevent much bigger sacrifices later on. Uh, meaning, uh, meaning taking sanctions seriously at this point might actually have some impact, uh, which would probably prevent some more robust engagement that basically everybody is trying to avoid. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and in regard to European internal politics, I'm not too much of an optimist in that. Uh, in that respect, but basically, probably we might talk separately about the issue of whatever had happened to the liberal democracy. And furthermore, what happens when liberalism and democracy divorce? 
I find this topic fascinating, extremely difficult to fathom in the US, but there are moments in history when liberalism and democracy become, if not incompatible, then really difficult to maintain together. It's a very unpleasant choice then put in front of people, what do you back, liberalism yeah. or democracy? And yeah. uh, that, that, that's a quintessential global experience which uh, doesn't really find its way into the US or at least until recently didn't find yeah. its way. US. And, yeah, and as you know, that's a question I'm particularly interested in because I think it's a very live question for Israel specifically. Um, the, but that's a different, uh, I guess, a different conversation uh, for a different day. My friend, I think we are uh, running out of time. So let's uh, wrap this up here and we will uh, be uh, talking to each other again very soon in our next installment. So Lado, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much, Dionir. Right time to finish, because as you see, it's becoming dark here. And as, <laughs> uh, as Edward Gray said in 1914, the lamps are uh, going off all over Europe. I wonder whether we will see them lit again in our lifetime. Well, couldn't think of a better ending. All right, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, check us out at umb.edu backslash ethics.